Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey everyone, I am here in Vancouver for NeurIPS, continuing our conversations with some of the researchers that are at and uh, participating in this amazing conference. And I've got the pleasure of being seated with Giannis Born. Giannis is a PhD student at ETH in Zurich and the IBM Research in Zurich. Uh, Giannis, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Thank you so much, Sam, for having me. Why don't we start out by having you share a little bit about your background. You're coming at things from a cognitive science perspective, but your poster here is on reinforcement learning. You know, how did you get interested in, in this field and how do all those threads come together? Right. Yes. So you're right. I'm having a background in cognitive science and in computational neuroscience. And um, so I've been like focusing on brain research for my past uh, five years of um, education. And now recently um, I've been doing um, more work on um, computational systems biology and specifically on cancer um, and cancer, trying to understand mechanisms of how cancer work and how we can find new treatments against cancer specifically. And in this work, I've been um, using mostly deep learning techniques um, and this will be part of um, like my presentation here at this conference also. And so, yeah, so how, how do those things go together? So I think like many people think it's in a way weird if you come from brain sciences and then you go into machine learning, right? Mm -hmm. And this is something where I would say it's like, it's a very obvious thing to do in a way, because if you look back into the history of machine learning, where it all came from, like McCulloch and Pitts, um, the first artificial neuron, and then a few... Um, years later, Frank Rosenballard, the perceptron. And so these were all computational neuroscientists. And they were, in the end, really trying to understand how the brain works. Mm -hmm. And they basically developed the, uh, the, the fundament of the field of machine learning. And so at some point, this community then, in a way, it split up into two groups. And one group was more trying to um, actually understanding how the brain works. And the other group was... Uh, more interested in solving the problems, right? right and from right. this pro from this community, the machine learning community evolved into. Um, but whereas computational neuroscience right now, it's it, it's still a field. It's still out there. It has been it's separating more and more from the machine learning community. Um, but it's still out there. And originally, it has been one like one big community. Yeah, yeah. And so, therefore, like I think it's quite natural to to have this process. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think uh, particularly here at, at NeurIPS, uh, I have the opportunity to, to speak with many folks that are kind of working on that edge of cognitive sciences, brain sciences, and uh, both using that to inform the way we think about machine learning, using machine learning to validate, you know, some of the biological theories. You know, what's maybe more novel is coming from cognitive science and brain science and applying machine learning to developing cancer pharmaceuticals. <laughs> How did that come about? Yeah. How did that come about? It's a, it's a good question. So, um, like, if you look at brain sciences, there's really this problem of seeing the brain, which is arguably the most complex thing we have in the universe, and seeing, like, observing this brain and trying to understand this brain from at different, like, scales, at different spatial scales, so to speak. So you can think about the brain in a very abstract 
uh, and the cognitive ways, thinking about cognitive phenomena like language and memory and those things. And you can think about it more from a neural perspective. Like how do actually, like what is the most fundamental unit of information processing? How do these units interact? How does information arise? And so like these are two fundamentally different approaches. And so I like in the first three years of my studies, I focused on cognitive science, which has more this top-down approach, like thinking from the big concepts and then down towards the implementational level. Whereas computational neuroscience, they have more like this bottom-up perspective. Mm-hmm. They, in the end, they're trying to solve the same problems, but they start first with the basic building blocks, like having a biologically plausible um, neural network model that imitates basic behavior of neurons, and then they try to scale it up in order to understand more complex cognitive phenomena. Mm-hmm. Right? And so like these two fields, they really they help each other and they need to, to, to work together in order to better understand how the brain works. And so after, after my undergrad studies, I really had the feeling, okay, I need something more solid. And I really wanted to have this bottom-up perspective from computational neuroscience, which then mm-hmm. I, I got in my, in my master's. And so afterwards, I, I, I mean, I had to say that I, I was keen to explore um, applications of machine learning because while, I mean, while studying the brain, I, I, I got really interested more and more into the whole field of data science and, and machine learning. But, mm-hmm. And I wanted to apply those techniques. But at the same time, I wanted, to, I wanted to still somehow work with the human body and with humans in general. So this is how, yeah, how I came about um, doing uh, cancer, uh, cancer drug modeling. And so the, the poster is titled Pac-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, tell us about Pac-Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Pac-Man is a frame. I mean, it's an acronym. So spelled with a double C and double N. So it's an acronym. Uh, we came up um, during my, um, like about a year ago during my master thesis um, for prediction of anti-cancer compound sensitivity with multimodal attention-based neural networks. Mm-hmm. And so like uh, when my supervisor came about with this acronym at <laughs> one of the very long nights we spent in the lab, we were like, okay, uh, there's no discussion. This is going to be the name for the project. Um, <laughs> so quite funny how, how this came about. So, and we, what we're doing in this work, uh, that was the first step of, of the project I'm presenting here at the conference um, we were trying to uh, basically forecast the effect, um, the um, inhibitory effect of a molecule against a specific type of cancer. And so we are treating this problem of predicting cancer drug sensitivity really as the property of a pair. And the pair is con- like composed of the molecule itself, the chemical, the drug that you give to the patient, mm-hmm. and then the particular two more cell that you want to target mm-hmm. because cancer is really like i mean it's a family of diseases and it is so diverse i mean there has probably never been two types of cancer that have been exactly alike because the the cascation the cascade of mutations you have they vary like heavily in between of every individual patients so it's really unfeasible to um try to investigate whether a molecule has some anti-cancer effects in general. So you really need to, to, to like treat this problem as the property of a pair. So is this drug, um, like has it an inhibitory effect against this specific type of cancer in this okay. patient individually? 
So shall I go on and explain uh, a bit yeah, more so, about the... So absolutely. Uh, one of the questions that comes up uh, first for me is one of the techniques you're applying here is reinforcement learning. How does mm -hmm. that play into, mm -hmm. uh, into achieving that goal? So it comes about in the second step. So okay. the first step was really just trying to, to predict the sensitivity, so the efficacy of this of a drug. And so what we, what, what we did in a consecutive step after we had like built this model, what we asked ourselves was like, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to have a model that can generate new drugs, mm, right? Mm -hmm. And that can like come up and propose new anti-cancer candidate drugs because... In the whole pharmaceutical industry, there's a huge um, productivity decline in the last few decades. And the estimated costs that you have per new drug, they are, esti like they are estimated to be 2 to 3 billion USD. And most of these drugs that are then like FDA approved and approved on the market, so they're really spe specific only for like very few types of diseases or even mm -hmm. one disease only. Right. So the cost in R&D um, that go are like spent in this business it's just huge yeah and so we i mean we came up with this framework where reinforcement learning is really core component where we're trying to design anti-cancer drugs specifically for individual patients or groups of patients so we're trying to envision a precision medicine perspective here where we really we are tr we, we are not trying to generically come up with new anti-cancer candidate drugs but we try to like in the design process itself we try to tailor the molecule the drug specifically to the need of the patient himself or herself mm -hmm. and so for for this framework we use we use a reinforcement learning regime okay uh, you also mentioned in the title of the poster transcriptomic data what is transcriptomic data right so you can think about transcriptomic data as basically um, the, the expression of every single gene that you have in your body. Like you, you know about the human genome and so parts of the human genome encode for specific proteins. Mm -hmm. And these expression of these proteins you can measure in the cell. There's different techniques to do that. So um, the most commonly used technique and um, the technique that... Um, was used to measure the data we work with is called our RNA sequencing data, mm -hmm. where you measure basically the um, mRNA uh, snippets in the cell. And so from this, you can infer basically which genes were expressed to what extent. So you end up, if you, if you do the sequencing step, you end up with a vector of about 20,000 um, genes. Um, mm -hmm. And for each uh, gene, you would have an expression value. This is usually just an integer, like how many times did you find this, um, um, the snippet? Uh, in the sample and then so this um, this vector you can really think of it as like a fingerprint of the cell so it's a like it's a proper characterization of the cell there's a different types of um, um, of omics data so this is transcriptomics data right there's mm -hmm. like also genomics data um, which directly directly measuring gene data and there's also a proteomics data where you actually actively measuring the um, the proteins proteins so the you know starting from that first step, you're kind of starting with trying to predict the effect of a drug on the cell. Is it um, is this a supervised learning type of a problem that mm -hmm. you is that the way you've framed it? Yes, yes, this is supervised learning. So it's a regression problem in the end. Um, it's quite simple in the fact that we're really trying to predict a single 
property and this is the um, IC50 value. So this is the um, micromolar concentration of a drug that you need in order to kill 50% of the cells. So, mm-hmm. um, and this is the thing you're trying to minimize. So if you have a smaller concentration of the drug, uh, then this drug is more effective, right? So your training data comes from measurements that have been done applying drug, you know, different types of drugs to different types of cells? Exactly. So there's huge databases for, um, for this problem. So um, the two we are working with are um, GDSC and CCLE. These are standard databases in the field and they, are, they usually don't work with patients directly because you can't try like several hundred drugs on, right. on the same patient, right? But they work with um, so-called cancer cell lines. So these are abstractions. These are cell lines that have been growing in the lab in petri dishes for quite some time. And you apply these drugs, I mean, uh, to, to these cancer cell lines. Mm-hmm. So these cell lines have been taken originally at some point from humans, but they have been growing in the lab for a long time. Right. And they have been mutations induced um, downstream. So they are proxies of real cancer, but it's, I mean, it's an active field of research to, to whether or not and to what extent they're proper mm-hmm. um, proxies. Yeah. And so in the creation of this data set, somebody carefully administered uh, small quantities of these drugs and noted the point at which half of the cells were or just over half of the cells have died off. And, and that's the, the proxy for the efficacy of the drug. Absolutely, right. Okay, yes. and so you, you built a model to predict the performance of new new arbitrary drugs uh, and how do you kind of featureize the the drugs right so that's a good um, it's a good question because in the end a drug is a molecule so this is a graph and mm-hmm. graphs are rather difficult to represent um, in a in a deep learning regime so um, what traditionally has been done by chemoinformaticians um, about a few decades ago is they would um, derive molecular fingerprints. So these are binary vectors. And in these binary vectors, every item would basically specify the presence of a certain feature. And this was completely handcrafted. So one feature could be like, um, do I have X uh, aromatic rings in this molecule or not? Something mm-hmm. like this. So, but this is a very arbitrary and handcrafted representation of a molecule yeah. and the field of deep learning has been moving forward. So, um, what, uh, I mean, one great thing that deep learning really brought to us is like uh, advances in natural language processing, right? Mm-hmm. So, and a different representation of a molecule can just um, be a text representation. So, mm-hmm. there's a certain languages, uh, the most commonly used language is called, uh, is called SMILES, and SMILES is an inline notation of, molecule, mm-hmm. um, of molecules where you would um, basically write down a list of atoms and bonds. So, you basically, you think about the molecule in a, um, as a graph, and then you do a traverse through the graph, and mm-hmm. you denote step by step the atoms and bonds. Kind and of like a the, much more rigorous approach to saying H2O for water. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And this is the type of representation we're working with at the moment. Oh, interesting. So you've totally skipped the accepted formalism and and are primarily working with this natural language approach. What's the thinking behind that? Is that is it that the the natural language has more expressiveness somehow than the binary representation or uh, is it something else? So I mean one thing that's great is that 
it is much more like it is closer to the actual representation of the molecule it is much easier to understand for any chemist any chemist can look at the smiles notation and can understand mm. um, the molecule can draw the molecule whereas this does not hold for a fingerprint so another obvious uh, like it's not obvious but another advantage of smiles is that it enables data augmentation so data augmentation like is commonly used everywhere in deep learning like images you make uh, rotations uh, whatever mm -hmm. Um, so what you can do is, um, apparently, if you think of a molecule as a graph, there's not a single graph traverse, right? But you can start at different... Start at different points exactly. and take different routes through. Yeah. yeah. And then you would get a, a completely different, not completely different, the atoms and bonds would be, be the same, but the ordering would be different and you would get a different text representation, mm. right? And this Whereas is, on the fingerprint, theoretically, they should all resolve to the same fingerprint. Absolutely, they do. Okay. They all resolve to the same. So you have a unique representation for the molecule in the case of a fingerprint, whereas in case of a smiles, you can really exploit this um, smiles um, augmentation, basically, mm -hmm. by exploring different um, graph traverse in order to augment the performance of, of, of mm -hmm. your... Of your better generalize. Yes, okay. it will okay. generalize much better. And so the advantage of working with text really is also that we can, you can more or less directly transfer all of the advances of um, natural language processing, mm -hmm. um, like attention-based models, um, which, by the way, are absolutely great because they leverage interpretability methods. So like attention, this uh, super commonly used technique in NLP, right, where the model really um, highlights only specific parts of the input sequence in order to like... Um, produce the next output token, for example, in a language translation task, right? Or in order to produce a prediction. And so we can also leverage these techniques into our model. And this is great because you can understand the reasoning of the model post-talk, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what we can do with this model is we can understand that um, the model came to a specific prediction because it was focusing on a specific substructure of the molecule, right? Okay. And then we can check in the literature, is this like a known substructure? Is it known to have certain chemical properties? And in this way, we can validate the performance of the model. Okay. Now, others doing similar types of applications have taken, you know, whatever their input domain is and kind of projected it to like an embedding space and finding related molecules in that embedding space and then using that to uh, identify candidate you know, materials, I think, is the example that I'm thinking of. Um, is that something that you've looked at as well? Yes. So this comes about in the in the drug generation part, which is the second uh, part of the project. Okay. Where we're trying to design new cancer drugs. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what we're doing there is we use um, deep generative models, specifically variational autoencoders. And what is really awesome if you're working with variational autoencoders is this property of the latent space and the fact that... Um, like similarity in this latent space, which is in a way the, the embedding that you generate for a specific input, in our case a molecule, mm -hmm. that similarity in this, in, this, um, um, in this latent space will correspond to um, a structural similarity of the molecule if you decode the points in the latent space. Mm -hmm. So this is like... It the seems, drug molecule in this case. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. So, I mean, it seems like a super natural property, right? You would expect this, that 
similarity in this latent space, although it is hidden somewhere in the network, it will resemble something meaningful. Mm -hmm. But apparently, this is not necessarily the case. So you have to specifically enforce this with uh, specific constraints that you have to apply during training this model. Okay. But they, and this is like the core property of variation autoencoders, but this doesn't come along naturally, basically. It's not for free. You have it, to figure out what the relationship is between two drugs that causes them to have a similar effect on the target molecule. Yes, in a way. Or the target and, cell. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what you can do, and this would, like, this would be a pure chemistry model. This doesn't necessarily need to have anything to do with, uh, with cancer or with, um, with drugs. It can be the same way for materials, like all kinds of chemicals, basically. So what you can do, for example, is you have a certain point in the latent space. You decode a molecule from it. It is some kind of molecule. Let's say it's aspirin or so, right? It could mm -hmm. be. So, and then you take a different point and you decode from there. And let's say you take, you get paracetamol, right? And then what you can do is you can, in the latent space, you can traverse, you, you, make, you can basically make a walk, like a walk from this point of paracetamol to the point of aspirin. Mm -hmm. And you can decode intermediate positions and you will end up with molecules that are in a way intermediate mixtures in between of aspirin and paracetamol. Yeah. So, and this is an, it's a super nice property for every, everybody working in drug discovery because you can much better explore the chemical space. And so this is something that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not obvious, but it is extremely important to have better models and techniques to explore the chemical space. The size of the chemical space, it is about 10 to the, it's estimated to be around 10 to the 60 molecules. Mm -hmm. So this is massive. Mm. The amount of atoms in the universe, I'm not sure it's like a few orders of magnitudes higher, but it, it's, it's not crazy. Right. I, I, don't right. th I think it's below 10 to the 100. I'm not, I would need to look it up. Mm -hmm. But so, and you need to have techniques to navigate this space meaningfully, uh, specifically at a time where, um, um, where we have generated and synthesized already so many compounds like i think it's in the order of 10 to the 9 or 10 to the 10 that have ever been synthesized and tested mm -hmm. um, but it is completely unfeasible to just uh, continue like a random sampling process right. and therefore you really need to have this uh, guided guided sampling and guided um, navigation uh, kind of going back to that phase two of of your project you are applying a you mentioned a generational uh, or generative rather model as kind of an intro to where the reinforcement learning comes in. What's the connection between those two? Yeah, absolutely. So this is uh, the part of the project where I'm really most excited about uh -huh. is about generating new drugs. Um, and so not so much the whole prediction um, model that I've been talking about before. So what we're really trying to do there is that given a transcriptomics profile of a cancer patient. So this can, in theory, work in the following way, that you have a medical doctor uh, making a biopsy from a tumor cell. Mm -hmm. the, uh, this biopsy is then sequenced. You get the gene expression. This is the transcriptomics data. You put it into the model. You have a variational autoencoder for these cell profile, for, so only for the transcriptomics data. You encode this um, transcriptomics data into some latent representation right and then in this latent space you fuse together the a chemical like another variational autoencoder so it's really like a combination of two variational autoencoders one is for chemistry it's just for pure chemistry and molecules and the other one is for 
cell profiles, specifically cancer cell profiles and transcriptomics data, mm-hmm. you fuse to get together the latent embeddings of these two models, and then you decode from there a molecule. And how you can use this model is really by you can you can feed it a cancer cell profile from a patient and it will propose you an anti-cancer drug. Mm-hmm. So originally, like like in the first place, this will be like a random molecule. Yeah. But and now the reinforcement learning comes into play. What we can do with this molecule is we can plug it into the prediction model that we developed in the first step. Right. 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 So in the first step, I said we have this prediction model that takes um, um, like has two inputs, namely a molecule mm-hmm. and a cancer cell profile, and it tries to predict the efficacy of a drug. Right? So this is kind of providing our scoring function exactly. for the RL learner. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. So we use this prediction model to, to get a reward. And then this reward is used in turn in order to update the generator. Mm-hmm. And then we have a closed loop system, which we can train with a policy gradient and reinforcement learning techniques. And then on the long run, we can, um, and this we've shown quite, quite consistently, we can like propose molecules that have a higher predicted efficacy according to our prediction model. The two variational autoencoders, are those trained independently or are they trained end-to-end somehow? Yeah, so they are initially uh, pre-trained completely independently. Okay. So you can really thinking about uh, these autoencoders as um, learning um, completely disentangled representations. So one is really for molecules, just to understand the, like this smiles language notation, yep. to understand how chemistry works in a way. And so the other autoencoder for the transcriptomics data, you can, yeah, so this is just trying to approximate and learn the space of possible cancer cells, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So these are pre-trained independently. And then what we do is really we, we like, we... Is that second one, is it, it's, yeah, so it's creating the uh, representation of the cancer cells. And then the, there's a decoder step that's taking these two and coming up with a prediction of the of a mo- of a drug molecule yes so there's a decoder that um, basically combines the two latent representation mm-hmm. of the cell profile of interest and a drug and then comes up with a new cancer drug so and how's this one trained so this is trained jointly in this reinforcement learning uh, okay regime. so it's part of that reinforcement learning circle got it yeah absolutely so what's important to note here is that it's highly non-trivial how you combine these different data modalities. It, it, it seems extremely arbitrary in a way to, to fuse latent representations of a molecule with the latent representation of a cancer cell profile. What we're doing there, it is, um, I mean, in a way, it is uh, the, just the first thing that came to our mind is we're summing up the latent representations. Mm-hmm. But... Because we are doing this consistently, while we are being in this reinforcement learning regime, we um, we think that we can basically warp this latent space representation from originally encoding structural similarity between molecules. Right? I was talking before in between, uh, like about morphing aspirin into paracetamol. Right? Right. So uh, we can like uh, morph this latent space into encoding functional similarity. And functional, by functional similarity, I mean different functional, pro- uh, like similar functional properties of the molecule. So that you have a certain subset of the space, and in this subset of the space, you will find molecules more frequently that have high predicted um, anti-cancer effects, basically, according to our prediction model. Do you, or have you come across research that 
looks into the you know algebraic combinations of uh, latent spaces and and how that you know what the how what the right intuition is there mm-hmm. are people you know how how much has that been studied have you come across stuff I mean to the best of my knowledge it's something that is not very very actively studied um, so there is a paper from actually from Europe's from two years ago called mm-hmm. Deep Sets and they are okay. talking about how to how to deal with sets data mm-hmm. and what they're proposing I'm is... I'm asking you in part because this is my second conversation today where someone said, oh, we just sum up these two latent spaces and that's what we use to... <laughs> right. I mean, I, I was... Yes, I, actually, I was today at a poster session uh-huh. and I talked to somebody who was doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. And like, I mean, I told him, honestly, this is kind of an arbitrary choice. I'm doing the very same thing in my work. I'm just uh-huh. interested... Do you have a better justification for it than I do, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, in a way, what they propose in this deep sets paper from two years ago, where they're talking about how to deal with the sets in, in a deep learning framework, is mm-hmm. that you need to have a permutation invariant operation um, in order to combine sets. Because the pr- thing is with sets... That was really, the justification that was given to me in, in the previous conversation. Right. It, it, so, it kind of eliminates the role of order exactly. in... Yeah. yeah, the order doesn't play a role. Right. So this holds for many operations, right? It, it like it holds for the uh, for an averaging, for sum, for many others. But so like the sum is something that we came up with, um, and it is an obvious choice. But um, to be honest, I to me in a way it still feels like we're mixing apples and oranges a bit, and I'm not super satisfied with. Yeah. Um, how we're solving this part of the also framework. losing information in the process. Just like if you yeah. were to do an average, there's uh, yeah. you know unique Absolutely. information that you're that you're just kind of throwing away. Yeah, there's information uh, being lost, and there's a actually there's a paper also like I saw another paper um, where they've been at this conference just yesterday where they've been looking into different ways of, of combining um, latent spaces, and okay. so they they proposed um, I think three ways. One was just like a uniform sampling. So you would basically have a mixture of both. So you would sample like uh, from a uniform distribution between zero and one. Mm-hmm. And then you would say, okay, I weight uh, the one representation with 80%, the other one with 20. And so mm-hmm. I just have a weighted average basically. Mm-hmm. So another thing they, um, they proposed was a Bernoulli distribution where you would basically pick, like because the latent representation is it's, it's, it's an embedding of a certain amount of dimension, right? It's a vector right. of a certain length. And then you can say for every dimension, you pick either one or the other. And you do this mm, according to okay. the Bernoulli distribution, and then you have a mixed representation. Or the third thing they were suggesting is like a, a learned embedding, basically, um, mm-hmm. where you have a specific, uh, like a few a deep, uh, a few dense layers in a, in, of a neural net um, to learn this embedding. So, but still all of these, they didn't seem specifically instructive to me but rather like okay you can do it this way or this way and we can check what works best and we see empirically this works best but it wasn't super yeah they didn't like provide a like a great justification for it but still i'm i'm curious and to try it out and this i will definitely try it out any particularly interesting observations uh in training the drl learner to solve this problem is it kind of similar you know to other use cases or were there specific things that you had to do here to get it to converge so it's an actor and critique framework so to speak where okay. you have the um the actor is this um, conditional drug generator that comes up with a new compound and the critique is the separately 
pre-trained this prediction. Running it through this prediction thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, and you can assess other properties of the molecules as well, right? So, mm -hmm. because this like predicted property, uh, this IC50, it's not the only property qualifying or disqualifying a molecule for being a drug. Mm -hmm. So there's also other things like water solubility is something that's extremely important. Or Will it kill you? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or like uh, cytotoxicity is a common thing that just like you have a drug that is generally so cytotoxic, it will just kill everything, just kill everything right? right? So, right. And then it doesn't help either, right? right? So, and there's many of those things um, that you really need to incorporate. And then this reward function for the generator can become very complex, mm -hmm. right? Because you need to trade off what is more important. Do I weight solubility higher than like at, uh, cytotoxicity or right. how about like uh, synthesizability of the molecules? Some structures are just extremely difficult to synthesize. And mm -hmm. although you can like draw them on the paper, you cannot really make them chemically yeah. in the lab, right? Yeah. So this is another thing. And Presumably so, that's all future work. And right now you're focused on performance relative to this predictor. Right, so this has been the first step, just uh, yeah. performance relative to, to the predictor. We have the, the framework now there with all these, um, like a, a panel of critiques, so to speak, to evaluate other chemical properties. Mm -hmm. This is something that is commonly studied um, or has been commonly studied to, to train generative models to, um, to come up with molecules that fulfill specific chemical criteria. What's really novel about our work is this bridging drug design and systems biology, basically, mm. where you leverage um, biomolecular information, in this case of the cancer cell, into the design process directly. Mm -hmm. And this is something that like, has never been done in any way. Mm -hmm. And this is what, uh, what distinguishes our work from, from like, a lot of what uh, is happening in, 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 in the computational chemistry domain and the drug, um, drug discovery domain. Oh yeah, with respect to your previous uh, question about reinforcement learning, so one thing that happens commonly in generative models is uh, this mode collapse, okay. where um, basically you are generating only a single um, element that can, in a GAN setting, for example, can really fool the discriminator very well, mm -hmm. but you lose the variety of the samples that you're generating. But so this kind of a form of overfitting. In a way, absolutely, exactly, because the model, in a way, it learns, okay, I have this specific instance and it works super well, so I just always go for this one, right? right. So why should I explore right. something else, right? And it makes a lot of sense to behave in this yeah. way. So, and this is something we, we also observed um, in the fact that um, the model we had, it tends to, um, like, produce long carbon chains. And for some reason, these carbon chains, they, under some circumstances, have the the property of uh, be having a high predicted efficacy according to our prediction model, mm -hmm. but still we know that they, they, they can't, uh, they don't really qualify as actual drugs. And so this was one of the challenges we were facing. So with respect to the results, what I'm most impressed by when I, when I look at this and what really surprised me, what I didn't expect when I started working on this is that the, drug, the drugs the, uh, the model comes up with, they really resemble closest with the known anti-cancer drugs that are known to work for this type of disease. So mm -hmm. what this means is that we train the generative model to design a new lung cancer drug. Mm -hmm. We eventually arrive at a new compound and we check the chemical properties of these compounds and we see, okay, from all known cancer drugs, we can measure the similarity and we see it's not most similar to any kind of cancer drug, but is most similar to known approved lung cancer drugs. And we have, we have the same result for breast. We generate a new drug against breast cancer. We 
check the database of known cancer drugs. We check which molecules are most similar by like a nearest neighbor search. Mm -hmm. And we find the nearest neighbors of this new drug cancer, uh, sorry, new breast cancer drug, uh, are actually approved breast cancer drugs mm -hmm. and not mm -hmm. cancer And is this nearest neighbor search in your... Uh, latent space or this nearest neighbor uh, search of the fingerprints of these molecules okay so because on a like again if you take the smiles notation you cannot really compute the nearest neighbor in between yeah. tags right doesn't make sense so we compute the fingerprint first okay and then we make a nearest neighbor search there by tiny motor similarity this is like the standard metric to use in this case um and they are yeah again what we find is that the molecules we generate they seem to be closest to known cancer drug, mm -hmm. cancer drugs that are approved for this specific site of cancer and not anything else. Mm -hmm. And this, in a way, it shows us that we're on the right track and that, in a way, the model understands that a lung cancer drug should have different properties to a breast cancer drug. Nice. And so in terms of your qualitative results and metrics, how are you approaching that? This is extremely difficult in the sense that the actual validation for such a framework is to test it in the way that you synthesize the drugs that the model comes up with. <laughs> right. And then you, uh, you, run, you, you run screening tests and you try to basically start the entire pipeline of clinical trials. And this is something we're working on at the moment. So at IBM, uh, we do have um, options to... Um, synthesize molecules and this is something we're, we're starting to do but at the moment we are looking for collaborators when it comes to the experimental validation mm. because this is a skill and expertise um, that we do not have in-house also mm -hmm. we don't have the equipment in-house to, to run these essays but therefore we are um, at the moment we are actively seeking for collaborators um, to work with us, uh, with us together to run these mm -hmm. drug screening essays to basically like in a petri dish measure how what's the efficacy of this drug you know taking a step you know back to the evaluation criteria we were discussing earlier is that something that is automatable like you, you've what maybe the the better way to ask the question is in your training loop what do you use as like a loss function mm -hmm. so the loss function is because it's really well, important. This is the actor critic thing. Yeah, right, yeah. Right, 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 like, right. like the reward is coming from from the, the prediction the model that we have. I mean, right. this, what Pac-Man really tries to do is it tries to run this drug screening essay for right. you. And so it's but it tries to run the... it in a machine as opposed to you have to do it by hand, right? Right. right. So, so it's spitting out these candidate drugs that pass its test of you know being able to fool you know the the critic or you know pass your predictor model. And then you're manually kind of comparing these to other known drugs for similar um, types of tissue for kind of a qualitative sanity check? Or is that, have you integrated that into the training process somehow? Mm -hmm. So it's all integrated in the training process okay. in the way that if you train long enough, you see that the um, model like with a high probability comes up with a drug that has a high predicted efficacy, which means it passes this drug screening Mm -hmm. essay this virtual drug screening it performs very well yeah and it has chemical properties um that are desired basically so it is uh, more or less easy easy to th synthesize it it has the right amount of water solubility all of these properties mm -hmm. and so but uh, then what we do is like we store those uh, molecules that haven't basically passed all of these tests mm -hmm. 
And then po uh, post hoc, what we can do is we can then look yeah. at these molecules together with a chemist yeah. and then check whether it is feasible to synthesize them. And um, because this is like, I mean, it's, it's, it's another set of problems. Like, how do you synthesize a molecule? Right. So there's right. a whole active field of research on retrosynthesis, retro right? Just okay. trying to basically decompose the um, the target uh, molecule that you want you you want to have into the reactants and reagents you need in order to get and arrive at this molecule, right, right? Right. And this is like I mean it's a huge problem by itself. So you really need to have this uh, like recipe of basic ingredients that mm -hmm. you can purchase anywhere in order to arrive at this new compound that probably has never been synthesized in the world before. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, Giannis, thanks so much for chatting with me about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.